Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us. This week we have an expert on the white power terrorist movement, Professor Kathleen Ballou. She's coming back. She was with us two months ago. She's fabulous. And the senior national security columnist for the Cypher Brief and legendary Washington Post reporter Walter Pincus on investigations. Now, remember, we take your questions each episode. So write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Plitacon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. We just love this segment. This episode is sponsored by our friends Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. And we thank you for supporting Magic Spoon and our other sponsors. It really helps to make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, within minutes after we stopped taping uh, last week's podcast, uh, it was one of the worst moments uh, in American uh, history. The final days uh, of this America's worst president hit depraved and dangerous depths as a mob terrorist group spurred on by him, stormed the Capitol, uh, created violence, five people dead. You know, the reaction is good. The House impeached Trump. Uh, I want to give a special tribute to Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a conservative with whom we rarely agree on policy, James, but who condemned Trump's incitement of mob violence in the Capitol as one of the worst of any president. Her vote, I wrote, and her statement was reminiscent of Senator Margaret Chase Smith's famous Declaration of Conscience, against Joe McCarthy. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, it doesn't, I don't think it matters a whole lot whether the Senate convicts him or not. They apparently are not going to have a trial uh, until after January 20th. If then his despicable place in history is sealed, he's never going to run again. So the next stage is going to be the criminal investigation, which I think will be launched by the new attorney general. Uh, he'll probably tap a special counsel to investigate and probably bring charges against Trump for trying to subvert an election. And I think that's more important than what the Manhattan DA is doing. And finally, I think Biden needs to appoint a bipartisan commission with subpoena power to probe and report on all of the other ugly non-criminal issues here. Tell me your take. Well, uh, first of all, I read your column on the commission. And of course, you recommended there be a Republican because it is verboten in Washington to have a Democratic commission head or independent counsel. Having said that, Governor Ridge is a a terrific guy. I'll give you an alternative name. John Gleason, who's eight years younger than Ridge, who was in the U.S. Attorney's Office that brought the mafia down. He was a federal judge since 1994. I don't know if he's a Democrat, but he was appointed by a Democrat. But at any rate, of course, what we need is vigorous enforcement of the federal criminal code. We needed this before this event happened. He was a career criminal. Should anybody be 
you know, it, it's a fitting in to the worst president ever if we had one of the worst days we had in American life. And the, the criminal law needs to be pursued to its fullest extent. That is my position now. That was my position after this catastrophic event of 6 January 2021. And it was my position before that. Criminality cannot, of, of that level, can't be deferred. It, it can't be off to the Manhattan DA or anything else. But I, I think if there's going to be a commission, I just would like to see, and I, I think your, your recommendation to Governor Ridge is certainly within the, the, the realm of reasonable things. But I, 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 I do, it's just one of these things that just drives me crazy about Washington. But we've had this discussion a thousand times before, so it's not going to do any good to pursue it any further. But your, your column was right. But I, I, I don't think, I think, of course, they have to investigate everything. And I think they're going to. I mean, I think they're going to be arresting people for a long time to come, as they well should. But I, I, I this this event does not change my thinking on the on the necessity of vigorous federal uh, investigations into his breaking quality. Well, I, yeah, and you're and 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 you're right. Uh, but it will be a incredibly important and tough, I believe criminal investigation. There are other issues here that need to be examined, just as there were uh, in in 9-11 and other times. I mean, the role that social media plays in this, what some of the other politicians who aren't criminally culpable uh, engage in here, some of the back uh, uh, stories in this, the, you know, the, the role of the press even. Uh, and I think, I think a commission can serve a very useful function, not uh, as any kind of substitute, obviously, for the criminal investigation, which takes precedence, but just for public understanding. I, you, I, I really identify with your point about we always name Republicans to head these things. Janet Reno never appointed a Democratic uh, uh, special counsel. Uh, I just think in this case, if someone wasn't as good as Ridge, I think he's like Tom Keene on the 9-11 Commission. If someone wasn't as good as Ridge, uh, then I would uh, I would not want to recommend it. But I think Judge Gleason would be terrific too. James, let me make one more point on Trump. The case against Trump here is not just what he said, those incendiary remarks on January the 6th, when he, by the way, uh, told the crowd, I'll be marching up Pennsylvania Avenue with him. And then he sent them off while he slinked off to the safety of the White House. That's what cowards do. But for two months, he was lying to the public about that the election was stolen on, on one, one month before January 6th. He said, come to Washington. It's going to be wild. That was what he was doing to incite these mobs. It's not a one-off. It's a, it's a pervasive pattern over a course of a couple months, and it's criminal. Of course it is. And, and of course, it has all of the cell phones and everybody there, uh, every record has to be subpoenaed. It has to be gone over. Uh, people need to be subpoenaed. They need to be called before a grand jury. Some need to be immunized. And there has to be a, a, a vigorous investigation to get to the bottom of this. And I think that, you know, one of the people we already know, we, we, we don't have subpoena power yet. Uh, all right, we're using that one of the people had 11 Molotov cocktails uh, in his pickup truck or his car, I don't know if it's a pickup truck or not, shouldn't assume that, uh, had like Ted Cruz staffers' phone numbers and Sean Hannity. Yeah. Uh, we need to know what was the role of, of Trump, people around Trump, what was the role of, uh, of some of these House Republicans, what was the role of staffers, 
Uh, all of these things have to be answered and they have to be, and that's what we're, we're going to talk to Walter Pinkus about, is how do we get to these answers as quickly and expeditiously as possible? I, of course, uh, respecting people's constitutional rights. And I think that we can do that. I think it's totally, I think the amount of information that they have right now compared to what they had two days ago is stunning. And what they're going to know two, two weeks from now is going to be stunning. But there's no, no better no, no better instrument justice than subpoena power than putting people under oath. And they don't do that. You know, your, your point about the enablers, uh, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, a uh, terrific uh, sophomore member of the House of Representatives, a uh, Navy veteran, uh, has now said that she saw three of her colleagues, presumably Republicans, uh, escorting around uh, people who looked like they were part of that mob the next day, showing them where various places were. Uh, if that's true, uh, if they find any member, any member or any staff person who coordinated in any way with those people, if it's a member, the person ought to be expelled. Uh, and if it's a staffer uh, and a member, they ought to be indicted. Uh, I the, have, the Congress person should, should be indicted too. The Pardon me? So the, the Congress person should be indicted also. Not, that's know, what I was not, saying. Well, I agree. Yeah, that's what I, I said. I, I, yeah. yeah, I think a staffer right, or right. congressperson, anybody who enabled right. that directly, this is not just speech, bad speech. This, 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 if this is true, and Mikey Sherrill is very reliable, somebody right. was doing something and they knew exactly where some offices were. I, 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 the only way that I, because I, I, once they're indicted, I wish they would stay so the public would see them. And the, the only way I think you should expel them, if, 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 a hundred percent of Republican caucus wants that person expelled, but just let them sit there. Now, if they come from a district that's, you know, got a cook PVI of, you know, plus R plus five, then you expel them because you can pick up the seat. But if they come from some cook PVI R plus 31, leave them there till they go to, till they, till they're convicted. So people can see them. Yeah, well, they'll be indicted, and uh, you know, um, after which point uh, they're more likely to be in an orange jumpsuit than in a. Well, remember, uh, they all. I don't know who they are, and and but but I do have. I know Mikey Sherrill, and I have great confidence that Mikey Sherrill really did see something. She really is reliable. She wouldn't say it unless she did, and we ought to find out what they were doing, who they are. And what what the consequences were? Hopefully, the the, the FBI is speaking with her as we speak. I suspect they might be. Yeah, I right? would too. I I, I I can't imagine that they're not. I I only that what I care about above all. And I, I, as you know, I cared profoundly about this before this. All right, it, it, without without justice, without accountability. All right, then then the it's not, it's not people, we have to have that. And mm -hmm. we have to, and we're starting, we're going to get it and we're going to get a lot more. If I was some of these people, I would not sleep very well at night. I really would not. Because that, 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 that and I don't, I, I think that uh, Judge Garland, I, I think, I think this guy has a, a real reverence for the law. And I, and I, you know, I think these, the, the, People that that uh, president elect is appointed have a real reverence for the law. If there's anybody, yeah. I've always been, I've always let, 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 let
Well, you're and, right about Judge Garland. He was he presided over the prosecution of the Oklahoma City bomber. So he knows what it's like to prosecute and do an effective job in prosecuting terrorists. And that's what these people were. Uh, they're going to be prosecuted on that. And that's what Donald Trump, I think, incited clearly. And I, I, I agree with you. I have great confidence in Judge Garland. Yeah, maybe maybe he can take, you know, Judge Gleason and put him in charge of coordinating well, the whole thing. Yeah. He took the mafia down. Yeah. At any yeah. rate, it just, I, I'm, 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 everybody needs to read Lincoln's second inaugural. That's where we are. Well, you know, let me, let me, this is not a change of subject because this is on Sorry. the subject in some ways. I watched that most of that debate on Wednesday and I got it. There were some people on both sides who were terrible. There were a couple of Republicans who were, you know, uh, uh, pretty eloquent, but some of the, Repo- some of most of that Republican uh, garbage was really embarrassing to watch. And one of them was, you know, the worst of all, as usual, was Jim Jordan. He's a mini Trump. Uh, he's a bully. He's a, he's a, in many ways, a coward, a mortal enemy of any kind of unity and comedy. But James, what got me was Jordan and Kevin McCarthy and those people saying, you know, we can't do this because it, it'll, it'll divide the country. We have to unify the country. Yeah, sure. I mean, look what great unifiers, you know, Jim Jordan talking about unifying the country is like what, you know, Bernie Madoff fretting about financial fraud. You know, Al, you're a dear friend. You're very quaint. You, you get disappointed or outraged. I'm not that. disappointed. I'm not you get outraged, you know, like Jim Jordan is a, is tolerant of perverts. All right. And I, the idea that he didn't know what was going on, on Ohio State wrestling team is utterly laughable, and and and, 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 and you know it's like him or Ken Starr. The people actually like get, you know what what went on. That. I, I just hope this: if they ha- had a Senate impeachment trial, which I doubt they will, please let Ken Starr be the lawyer for for for, for Trump. Please let him be up there. I beg you. Accept Rudy as a co-counsel. No, no. Ken Starr and Durswich. Rudy's going to the penitentiary. I know he is, but he can do the trial beforehand. I agree. I'd much rather have have Ken Starr. I'd much rather have Ken Starr. Well, maybe his friend from Georgia, Lynn Wood, uh, who wants who who he praised and uh, then said he wanted to execute Mike Pence. We need Ken Starr. Yeah, yeah. Linwood is just another crazy, you know. He can he could be a deputy. I mean, you know, I look, you're right though. There's I think it's unlikely there's gonna be a Senate trial, but I don't really care. I think everything oh, that you yeah. and I've talked about in the last seven or eight minutes is just supersedes that. Uh, I don't someone said, Well, you gotta have a Senate trial. I heard it today, you know, uh, for his place in history to make sure he's the first his place in history is set. My brother, the longtime Republican in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called me the other day and said, you know something, the one good thing, this is a good moment for Pennsylvania. I said, what the hell are you talking about, Bill? He said, we now no longer have the worst president in the history of America, James Buchanan. And on that, he's right. This guy, I'm not worried about his place in history. We know that. Yeah, I'm not. The only trial I'm interested in is a a trial that 12 people judge. And the fest, and I think we're going to get there. I, I think I think this guy is gonna. I, I think he's done. And you know, I mean, uh, go ahead. The I'm level sorry. of investigation and the depth of his complicity and guilt is stunning. Well, I you know before we go uh, next Wednesday, uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, 
uh, will be sworn in uh, on the west front of the Capitol. Uh, I think security will be like we've never seen before. Uh, I So that makes me less worried. I would encourage the Biden people to tamp down uh, any kind of uh, events, or ceremonies next Wednesday. This is a really incredibly solemn and dangerous time. Walter, you know, our friend Walter Dellinger said, hey, all he needs is a Bible and the chief justice. Now, you're going to have more than that. And while many of us can celebrate, you know, the fact that we have a new president and Joe Biden uh, and counting the hours to the criminal uh, is gone from 1600 Pennsylvania, I, I think the time for, you know, celebrations will be later. Uh, you know, I, I, I sort of thought and would discuss, you know, why don't they just go in a, you know, residence that's out on a balcony and the chief justice and Biden and Joe Biden. I, I think it's kind of important that they do it on a step to the Capitol now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I but but not much more, not much more. Yeah, I agree. Not much more. I, but I think that that now is, uh, uh, you know, as you know, I, I, I changed my mind sometimes rapidly and frequently, but I'm going to change my mind on that. I don't think, I, I hope, I really hope that they, it's very, very limited. I'm, I'm certainly not in a celebratory mood, nor is anybody else. And I, I think that Joe Biden and the people around him are smart enough to know that the, the moment at the end. But I do think the symbolism of him on the Capitol steps is, is important. Yeah, no, I I agree, and I'm as a, the John Roberts in a Bible is 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 hyperbole, but it ought to be a very yeah, small uh, gathering. I was, I was pretty. I said it was a minimum requirement. I I actually thought till this that, that they should have done it that way, but not anymore. Yeah, and I think, but you're right. I would be in in favor of exactly what you said, but with a very small crowd. We don't want to have that place packed. We don't mm-hmm. want to have you know people out there. And I loved going. I went. I took all my children to a. Uh, president taking the oath of office. And it was really, you know, I think thrilling. They were young, but they still do remember it. Um, but, you know, they're going to put on some television extravaganza that night with entertainers. Fine. I'm not going to watch it. But, um, you know, it's Joe Biden and and the Bible, Kamala Harris and the Bible and and wherever uh, the criminal might be. So that'll make this time next week. I'm going to feel real happy. I, I am too. And I, I don't know, you know, and I don't know what that guy. He he's 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 got a miserable rest of his life, and I and oh. that oh. makes me happy. He's got a really really miserable rest of his life. Yeah. And when every time his phone rings, it's a disaster, and that right. makes me joyously happy. Amen. Hey, James, this episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. That's the great family cereal, and I can attest to that. Three generations of my family, with my three-year-old grandchild, maybe uh, the uh, the leader, love Magic Spoon. It's delicious, zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net carbs in each serving. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, or blueberry, which is Kai's favorite flavor, which means you can stay healthy and still enjoy your breakfast. Yeah, it, the Magic Spoon does. It, you know, I'll I tell you, about, I'm wrong about a lot of things in my life, but I've always had this absolute rule. And for my life, I've been right about it. Is the worse it tastes, the better it is for you. Right? I mean, the worse it is, the better it tastes, the worse it is for you. We know That's what the you absolute mean. nutrition rule. If it tastes good, right. butter, salt, it, it's not worth a shit for you. Right? right. And if it, if, it, if it tastes bad, it's good for you. 
And that rule has carried me through 76 plus years. And Magic Spoon has like said, okay, I was wrong. Here's something that actually tastes good and is good for you. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know how they did it. It had to, it had to be some engineers in a lab. I have no idea. But they actually pulled off something that I, I heretofore I've had no experience with it. It actually tastes good and it's good for you. Well, and and it is it is gluten free, grain free, soy free, low carb. Uh, it's so great. It's got all of the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. So go to magicspoon.com slash warroom, grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code warroom at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product that it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. This is the real thing. You, if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. Again, I'm going to repeat magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping and look for the link on our show notes. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Hey, James, two months ago on this program, Catherine Blue, a University of Chicago history professor, author of Bring the War Home on the White Power Terrorist Movement, warned that if those people thought this election were stolen from Donald Trump, violence might ensue. Tragically, she was prescient as a Trump-incited mob stormed the Capitol to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Five people died. Dr. Ballou, you follow these people very carefully. You follow, and I'm sure, the messaging and everything since January the 6th. What is the takeaway of these white power nationalists uh, on what happened uh, with the Capitol carnage? I think the short answer is that a lot of people in accelerationist spaces, in white power internet spaces and elsewhere will see this or already see it as a stunning victory. Um, I think if we look at the way that people are talking about what happened um, when when these people stormed the Capitol on January 6th, we see a very divided story um, about who was there, what they did, what it meant, and who might be held accountable on the right and the left, especially the far right. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of reasons that people might see it as a green light to further action. So that's what you feel. Rather than discourage them, this may well embolden them to do more. Yes, I think that's right. And I also think that while it's right that much of our response is focused on the role of President Trump in inciting the mob, um, I think it would be a mistake to think that he is in a position to call off this groundswell of action. He can he can incite them, but he probably can't call them off. What impact, if any, do you think it will have on them? He was impeached by the House. He probably faces almost certainly criminal charges. Uh, is that going to be uh, more of a motivating factor or have they moved beyond Trump now? I think that what's concerning here is that we're dealing with several different streams of activism on the extreme right. Um, so the mob that we saw on the 6th included some people that were there um, who are, you know, fans of the president who feel very intensely that the election was stolen. Um, of course, we know that that is not the case, but they feel that that is true and who wanted to simply support him um, in Washington through Stop the Steal protests. 
Alongside them, there's a second stream of activity that's more extremist. Um, and these are people who have been recently radicalized towards believing in um, the conspiracy theories uh, that broadly we have called QAnon, um, which are, you know, disproven theories that that state that a mob of evil elites are in control of our government and our banks and, and other parts of our society and, and um, are involved in some amount of Satan worship and child trafficking and pedophilia. These are, are very vivid conspiracy theorists. And what we've seen is a radical uptick in radicalization among people that are being taken into these groups. And we see um, that it works very, very quickly to bring people to radical action. And then there's a third strand that I think has the longest history in some ways and I think um, is the most ideologically motivated in some others. And that is the strand of activity here that was um, that was carried out by white power activists. Now that group um, is people, these people have been active since the late 1970s and early 1980s in many cases. Um, we see a pan-generational movement. Um, it's a movement that is heavily militarized and operationalized through a cell-style terroristic model. Um, and it's a movement that has largely not been interested in political change so much as it has been interested in attacks on democracy and its institutions and attacks on American civilians. So it's that last strand that I study and that I'm particularly concerned about because um, that's kind of the ingredient that escalates all of this from more than a free speech action or even a radical um sort of political protest, but really makes it clear that this was an attack on democracy itself. Just quickly now and turn it over to James. Do you think the intent among some of these people was to capture or even kill Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence? You know, it's hard to know who they were intending to detain, but I think that the very most generous interpretation we can take from the photographs of activists who were apprehended with um, heavy-duty restraints, um, and and these were, you know, we, you can go and look at these photographs of people with the plastic handcuffs. Um, I suppose there is a defense that one could give that they were planning to chain themselves together to block an entrance. That's a tactic that I've seen at protests before. Um, but I don't think it's likely. I think that the end game there was very likely to detain and um, perhaps do violence to one or more of our legislators. And certainly some of these activists spoke ahead of time about who their sort of chosen enemies might be. Um, some of them had lists of targets. And we see... Um, president for that kind of an action and the attempted kidnapping of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer um, back in the fall when they talked about kidnapping her and quote unquote bringing her to trial. Um, now, trial in the lexicon of this movement does not mean, you know, taking her to a courtroom or performing a citizen's arrest, although that's already alarming when we're talking about people who are also using explosives in their plans for protest. Um, they're talking about trial by rope. And we saw on the 6th, the erection of a gallows outside of the national capital. We saw um, many references to um, something in the white power novel, the Turner Diaries called the Day of the Rope, which is the mass hanging of 
the people that this movement calls race traitors. Um, and that includes uh, legislators and Congress people alongside journalists as targets of violent action. Wow. James Carville? So, Professor, people that did not listen to our podcast uh, are under the assumption that this is a bunch of angry males, white males. Uh, you've pointed that, that, that females are a large part of this, and I, I was not shocked that the first person through the window was a re- re- Air Force veteran who was re- really radical, who only got shot. The second person to die was a female that had come from Georgia that was clinging to Don't Thread on Me Gadsden flag who was trampled to death. Uh, and, and when we talk about the, the, the crazy nuts and the far right in Congress, I, I think that uh, Margie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt, that they stand out pretty good. They can hold their own and probably exceed the best of them. So what is the – because we don't want to just – blame males for this what is the t- tell us about what's attractive to this to females and how how, how what, what caused your research what, what have you what can you tell us going forward about this yeah i mean one thing to think about is that in every way but race this has been an incredibly diverse social movement um so not only does it bring together men women and children it brings together people in every corner of the country it, it bridges divides between rural urban and suburban communities but it's also brought together people in the white power movement who have enormously different kinds of beliefs um they're all white supremacists so that is the common factor here. But they also, um, you know, we're talking about an ideology that is flexible and opportunistic enough to bring together, for instance, um, you know, urban skinheads who are wearing a ton of eyeliner and drinking and doing drugs and going topless with um, very conservative rural survivalist compounds. Um, And their leaders talked about this all through the 80s and 90s about forging a kind of flexible movement that would be able to unite white people across these big kinds of differences, including gender, including age, including who has and has not served, in order to carry out their larger purpose, which was a attack on the nation in order to um, create a white homeland or possibly even a white country or a white planet. Um, this is a profoundly violent and genocidal mission, and it depended in large part on the, the social activism of women to hold together the movement and create the opportunity to do further violence. Now, when we look at um, the the case of Ashley Babbitt, who is the veteran, multi-tour veteran who was killed um, during the assault on the Capitol, um, and the woman who was trampled to death while holding that don't tread on me flag, these are both moments of extremely tragic irony, right? That that someone who took an oath to defend her country from enemies foreign and domestic was caught up in a moment of attacking the outcome of a fair election, that somebody who believed that she was being trampled on would then become um, caught in the crush of this crowd. Like, we should not set aside the real human tragedy in those deaths because they convey a state of emergency that is felt across the right um, and not just in the most extremist circles. Um, I think it is hard to overestimate how huge the gulf has become between 
the two ways of understanding what happened in Washington on January 6th and how much distance there is um, to make up before we would be able to come back together as a country. So if, if you got a call six months from now and it said, this is Attorney General Owen and, and General uh, says, uh, Professor, we make a lot of decisions before we, we charge someone. What is your best guess if we were to indict Donald Trump? What, what effect did we have to worry about this? In, in your professional judgment, how much of an effect would this have? And how much of an accelerator for violence would, would something like this be? Well, I think, um, you know, Trump stands as a figurehead for the movement, um, whether that is genuinely felt or whether that is being opportunistically exploited is difficult to say in some cases. Um, but certainly the white power movement has reacted to the events of January 6th um, as a moment of opportunity to recruit among that Trump base. Um, I think, you know, the, the president's um, impeachment today, the impeachment vote, I think the prosecutions of the president will continue to have an impact on these circles. Um, I don't think that that's a reason to hold back from the legal action that our country has to take when there is an incitement to mob violence. But I do think that that means we have to really confront this threat to our democracy and to to our people, because, um, you know, you know, it's it's not just Trump. It's not just about Trump. This is a longer and deeper problem with a history that we can understand, and with an ideological claim that we need to to take to take on um, seriously. So, but there would be you, you you would say that there is some there's some risk. Some elevated risk in doing this that 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 some that 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 would be a possibility, correct? I think sure. I think I mean sure, but I think let me see if I can if I can tease this out a right. little bit. I think we have already passed the point of elevated risk. Um, we have already created this kind of perfect storm where. Um, a president who is interested in inciting this base of support has collided with a long and old infrastructure of white power paramilitarism um, that is heavily armored and interested in doing violence to Americans and to our system of government and to our nation. Um, we're talking about you know, the operationalizing of a movement that is dedicated to the overthrow of the United States, um, colliding with a political figure who is at very least volatile and um, who who stands to benefit from fanning these flames. I think we're at a real precipice moment here um, that, that requires all of our best attention and all of our best work. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week is that many of us grew up with a progress narrative of American history. I grew up with this narrative of American history. And by that, I just mean that the story that I learned was that there was a whole lot of, 
of badness in the past, right? Like there was racism, there was sexism, there was child labor, there was um, a whole bunch of problems in our past alongside great achievements and great promise in the American experiment. And then the narrative goes, you know, we had the civil rights movement, we had a coming to terms, we had a realignment, um, and white supremacy was supposed to be finished. Um, People on both sides of the spectrum really believed in this story, really thought about a post-racial America, really thought about a colorblind America. Um, conservatives bought into this too, and some still sort of hold on to this idea of a colorblind nation. But I think that the Trump years really call into question the idea of how we ever thought that white supremacy would go peacefully into the night, you know? I, I mean, what we see here is that white supremacy is so deeply rooted in our systems of government, in our history, in our social formations, that there, this will not be a nonviolent end. Um, and if we want to live in a nation of post-racial, in, in, a, in a land of racial equality, it's something we're all going to have to work for. And, and I think that we're really in a moment when we have to think about if it's something we want, what are the actions we must take as a nation to move beyond that problem? Professor, let me ask you about that in just a minute. Just one more, though, and that is, you know, you talked about some of these groups engaged in pedophilia. There were, you know, people running around shirtless. But but they, they're also is, and, and what I guess I'd call an unholy alliance between elements of, of, of some of these white supremacists and elements of the religious right. Well, let me just clear up something really quickly about what I'm saying regarding pedophilia. I'm referring to the totally disproven QAnon claim that elites okay. are engaged in pedophilia. Okay. Okay. Um, right. I just, but, I'm not still, making a claim that anybody is engaged in pedophilia here. Okay. Well, I, I stand correct, but it seems inconsistent okay. <laughs> that the religious right would be attracted to this people, these, these, these groups, but, but there is an alliance of sorts between elements of the religious right, isn't there? Well, I think that that's very contested. I think that there are people of faith that have taken a very hard look at all of this over the last week, if not longer, um, and people of faith who are really interested in um, reevaluating some of those relationships. I think what we see from the last stretch of the 20th century is that the rising um, politicization of churches in general and of evangelical churches in particular has sometimes corresponded with or created opportunities for radicalization um, towards more extreme politics. Um, and by that, I mean not just what we think of as a typical set of conservative issues, um, but conservative issues that can be um, warped into this white power idea set. So by that, I mean, to a white power activist, um, there are a set of issues like opposing immigration, opposing abortion, opposing LGBT rights, opposing feminism that align with kind of the larger conservative worldview. But to white power activists, that's not about the same set of core beliefs. Um, to a white power activist, all of those issues at the end of the day are about the defense of the white birth rate and trying to make sure that they oppose immigration 
education so there are fewer people of color, so that they oppose feminism to keep women at home so they can continue to have white children, to oppose abortion because they're worried that it will undercut the birth of white children. All of it for them comes down to this deep sense of emergency um, and an idea of looming racial apocalypse. Um, in other words, for them, it's about something that most of us understand as a... Um, a soft demographic transformation when a community will no longer be majority white or when a town will not or when the country will not anymore be majority white, they see that as tantamount to racial annihilation. Now, I don't think that that's something that um, is a belief that most conservatives hold or even that most, you know, it's it's not something that's held across the religious right. I think it's a very extreme um, uh, manifestation of some kind of conservative mindset. Um, it's certainly one that is pervasive in some ways, but I think it is really contested by a lot of people. And I think that there is ground here to reclaim what is meant by, um, by, by being a believer in these times. And in fact, you know, some of the people I've been working most closely with over the last year in combating this threat are people who are inside of the evangelical church who are really deeply worried about what they're seeing. Well, James, you want to you want to ask a final question of this? Yeah, I'll I just make up observation because these people blend down. When I was at Tulane, and I, I, I can't do it now with the pandemic, I, I would make them do a cultural assignment where they had to go live in a culture for a weekend that they weren't be. Well, a lot of my students were, you know, like out of state students, a lot from the Northeast, and two of the kids went to a militia uh, weekend out in a Chaplai swamp. And they were all, and they, they had everything in it. So, you know, I uh, said, debrief us. And he said, you know what? They were kind of, they, they would like cook together and their kids were playing flag football or, or stick ball, softball or something like that. And they were actually, they, they all thought of themselves as, as kind of nice people. And, you know, they, sometimes they, they blend right into society. I mean, they just don't don't stick out like a wearing the like the the guy that had the cute T-shirt on or, or the the Viking guy, but man, you never know where these people are, and you, they they look normal to you. Yeah, That's just my, there's my, there's two really important things that I want to pull out of that story. That it, that's such a good place to think about all of this because first of all. Um, you know, the the Q shaman, the man um, with the uh, Odinist tattoos wearing the horns, was, of course, heavily photographed at the January 6th rally because um, he is such an unusual-looking person. Um, but that's not how most of these activists chose to present themselves. Um, and at public-facing rallies like this one, or we might think about the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, um, there's coordination around how people are going to present themselves. And they didn't come out to the Capitol wearing their most, um, you know, horrific shirts and carrying their most racist symbols in large part, although a few people did here and there. Mostly what we saw was Trump gear. Mostly what we saw were militia flags and South Vietnam flags and um, don't tread on me symbols that are largely 
um, okay with a lot of the American public. So that's one way that we know that this was a public-facing action that was not meant as a mass casualty attack. It was meant as a show of force to bring people into this cause who, who activists think can be radicalized. Um, the other thing in what you're saying is it's really difficult to overstate how important the social movement part of this is. So exactly like this militia weekend that you're talking about, if we think back to the moment when this movement became revolutionary and declared war on the federal government and decided to embark on a campaign of domestic terrorism that would stretch across you know, decades, if not generations, um, in a sustained attack on American people. That happened at the Aryan Nations World Congress in 1983. And part of that event was about this secret meeting and declaring war and a set of um, fiery sermons about white supremacist ideology. And part of that meeting was about a big spaghetti dinner and a volleyball tournament and a meeting point for young white people who wanted to fall in love with others in the movement. That social network has knit together this scattering of people over time in ways that are very durable and very important to these activists and that really create the bridge by which people can be radicalized and, and the networks that support escalating acts of violence. Boy, I, I'll tell you, um, you have been a, a fabulous guest. As I say, you were tragically prescient um, back in November. Nobody understands this movement and the dangers it continues to pose in America than Kathleen Ballou, uh, the distinguished scholar at the University of Chicago. Thank you and be safe. Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for continuing to spend time on the story. I, you wouldn't have been offended if we'd have played Cat Ballou, would you? She might oh, have been. I don't think so. But maybe don't <laughs> don't say mean and evil through and through or, or my parents won't like it, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All always, right. Professor Blue, always a pleasure. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it sure uh, is. Bye. Hey, James, in the pantheon of great Washington journalists, I don't mean really good, I mean great. There is a special place for Walter Pincus, the longtime investigative and national security reporter for the Washington Post, now columnist for Cypher Brief, and before that, he ran congressional investigations for Senator J. William Fulbright. Walter, first of all, thank you for joining us. There's no one that knows more about how to investigate so you wrote about it in your cipher column this week, whether it's a Senate trial, which I still think uh, I'm not sure is going to happen, or the likely criminal probe of Donald Trump and a special commission. What are the first questions that a good investigation has to ask going into this? Well, I think you've, you've got to start where it began, which is work your way, I think, even uh, were I running the investigation, I'd start pre-election with uh, finding out after Trump started talking about mail and uh, the rigged election that would come after mail, I'd start with the post office, which changed its rules, changed the postmaster general, and then made changes there. Because Trump clearly had plans even before the election to complain about it being rigged because of uh, mail ballots. So I'd start pre-election there. Who did, who'd the White House talk to? 
what conversations went on with the post office, what changes did they make before the public began looking into that. But then well, you wrote that uh, on the question of Trump inciting violence, once you've established that that was his motive, if you if you can't establish that all along, that um, David Kendall, a top Washington lawyer with whom I rarely disagree, but I disagreed with his column this week, but he said there are ambiguities in Trump's pre-mob assault words. But 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 tell us that suggests that you have to find not just you can't base it just on his words on January sixth. It has to be all the stuff leading up to that. Yes, that I I basically see what you're looking into is a plot that was begun before the election, but then followed through. They had plans to claim that it was rigged, and they have gone through many stages. And in fact, his speech on the 6th was his last stand, but he had gone through three or four or five phases during and after the election. Uh, And that is, I'd sort of look at who arranged for all those legal battles in many states that he went into. There were more than 60 suits filed. Who organized that? Then you had a whole question during December of certification in states, and there were attempts to interfere with that. And then uh, the certification took place. And so all that was left was January 6th. And uh, although I could argue with David, you you remember I went off and got myself a law degree. Um, So I've looked up the law. And and I'd argue with the words because there were many words uh, that go beyond, there's a case called Brandenburg, which involved a Ku Klux Klan leader uh, and his words that we were going to take revenge and things then happen. Uh, just saying we're going to take revenge uh, was not considered insightful because nothing happened. He was at a Ku Klux Klan meeting and there was no immediate action taken. But this but time there was, you know, action taken. Well, Walter, I think you're right, too. It's the same with that call which to the Georgia Secretary of State where he tried to strong harm him into uh, manipulating, uh, you know, some kind of election fraud so he could win. And, and, and I think you wrote and believe that, you know, yeah, that's good. Take that, but then see what other calls he made. Exactly. With a subpoena power, you can do that. No, I think that's, what you have to do. In other words, there are several phases of this, and each phase, uh, you're right about, I left the Georgia one out on the list, but I'm sure he called other people. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to, I mean, this is a real investigation would easily take a month or two. James Carville? 
so so one of the many reasons that I, I, I worship Walter Pinkus, and, and, and I don't say I hold him in contempt, but I'm not overly impressed with the national press. And this is a true story. In the lead up to the Iraq war, when, when the New York Times was writing jackass Judy Miller stories and the Post was doing this and that, and right before the war, two stories that I always call Walter A-17, well, Walter Pinkus saying people are not really that sure uh, whether they're really weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. And, 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 and the establishment and Colin Powell and every, you know, cocktail party person was out there. And Walter had these stories. That I'll give the, at least the editor at the time credit that they, they hit him. They put him out, but they hit him. The Post, the editor at the, the Post. Post. Yes, yes, that happened. And everybody that listens to this podcast needs to know that that happened. And, and, and the complicity of people in what maybe the, one of the great foreign policy disasters ever. This guy had sources in the Defense Intelligence Agency and was saying, ah, the thing is not, it's, I don't remember the story, Walter, but you always remember what you had in it. But the gist of the story is not, not so fast here, people. <laughs> Slow down. There might not even be any. Of course, it turned out that you were right in the collective wisdom of everyone else was in tatters. So I just want our, our viewers to know, uh, excuse me, our, our viewers, our listeners to, to know exactly who we're talking to. So let's let's go back because the, 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 the thing about the veil is intriguing. It, it, I am uh, a mediocre lawyer. I was a mediocre law student. But it looks like the case for inciting is much stronger against Rudy Giuliani than it is Trump. And because he talked about combat and, and Trump, at least somebody stuck in the word, you know, go, he had the word peaceful in there. And it, they got so many other things that they can give Trump on. I think they ought to indict him as fast as they can and then squeeze the hell out of him for information on Trump on all of this. Because I, I think the case against Giuliani for inciting is, 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 is really strong. Do you, you have a view on that? Well, I think you have uh, – that's why you have to have a clear and organized investigation instead of taking it sort of piecemeal. And one of the things I learned to do is you've got to put things in chronological order and then fill them out. And as you do that, uh, chances are Giuliani wouldn't be a very good witness. But the people Giuliani talked to, and what Giuliani said to those people who have no liability and are, are much more capable of giving you an honest answer uh, than Giuliani is. You work your way up. And it's, you know, then the president met with Giuliani. In that case, he'll argue he's my personal lawyer. But when a criminal act is involved, there is no lawyer-client privilege. So you've got to use right. all mean, those I, tricks. Walter, I agree he would be a crappy witness, but he would be a much better witness if he was facing the imminent prospect of jail. All right? Well, he'd the, be the, a he, better he, witness. He, memory would refresh. He'd be a better witness if you knew what really happened and asked him about it. <laughs> but I, 
look, I, I think that they are going to find out so much because these guys are they're, they're arresting them. And this is my idea. Just respond to it and say, James, you're crazy. I have a, the, 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 the prosecutor, people should say, look, you got 14 days. If you want to come up and say I was there and you're willing to name five other people that were there, you're going to be charged. You're going to plead guilty. And the sentencing memorandum depends on the, uh, how good you give us the other five. I think we ought to get these people turning on each other like crazy. And I think you can do it. And I think they're going to get cell phones. They're going to get all kind of crap. I think we're going to get the bottom of this thing a lot faster than people think. Well, I think a good organized investigation is going to break this thing apart because I think there are many, too many people involved. And, and the hint of it all is how much information is leaking out to the press right now without anybody having a subpoena or a legal argument or a legal order to make them talk. It's it, yeah, I mean, the New York Times piece about what went on between Pence and Trump at the last minute uh, offers enough of a lead to try to put together that exact event. Because somebody's yeah. already talking about it. Yep, that, no, and, 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 and Pence and Mother have had enough of this because we know Pence leaked the whole thing. And he, he could be valuable uh, going forward. I don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think Mother's very pleased with, with, with the Donald. But no. that, that's just my guess. Albert? Well, Je uh, Walter, also, let's get back to the Capitol. I mean, uh, we, we said earlier there was um, uh, Mikey Sherrill, a very, very uh, serious and good legislator from New Jersey, Democratic rep, said today that she saw three members, I believe she said, uh, giving people who appear to have been part of that mob the next day a tour around the Capitol. One, an, an investigation certainly would get in once you get into what happened on January the 6th, would look into whether there was any complicity by members or staff members beforehand. And that's where you can get some of the mob perhaps to flip. Well, it's, it's, there are also members who have talked about what went on. Uh, right. I must admit there's a long video, uh, with some members two or three days, as you said, prior to the event, talking to people who were part of uh, what went on. I mean, there is, there is a huge amount of information. The, the, one, the one thing, there are two things going on. One is a big investigation, the FBI and uh, Justice Department. And that's sort of criminal acts. What I think is needed, and I'm biased because I work for the Senate, I think, and covered the Iran-Contra thing, is the Iran-Contra Joint House-Senate Committee is not a bad uh, way of going about it. If you remember, it was a joint committee, but it was a joint committee in which 
when you finally put the investigative work, which took a month or two, together, the public hearings, which you have to have, had both Democrats and Republicans. And in this case, you're going to need Republicans taking part. You can't make it a just an administration thing uh, because they'll be accused of being Democrats, a Democratic administration, and a, a democratically controlled Congress. But what they did was the hearings were divided up in a way in which the Democratic counsel had a half hour to lay out his facts. The Republican counsel had a half hour to lay out his. And the members who won't know all the facts and are worried about politics got their five minutes in which they can complain or make whatever speech they wanted. But the public. Yeah, but Warren, you know, I mean, I mean, you're right. I think that worked. This is a different Republican Party. The ranking Republican member likely would be a Jim Jordan, uh, and it would turn into a you know what show, you know, which is why I think a a a independent commission outside Congress with really credible people. I had suggested Tom Ridge could chair it. Uh, I think, unlike 1986, may be a better way to go. Uh, to be honest, I think uh, I think having any pro-Trumper uh, having his five minutes after an hour of facts have been laid out uh, is not going to have the same effect that you're worried about. Uh, then well, I hope. One way or another. Let me ask you this, because you're you wear so many hats of expertise. Uh, I mean, as a great investigative reporter, as a great uh, uh, national security and foreign policy reporter, uh, as a longtime expert on what it's like to marry good. Uh, so let me ask you to, to put on the national security hat. I'm quite Bill old. Burns, <laughs> Bill Burns, CIA. Good or bad appointment? Good. He's Tell a, us why. He's good because he is a, a consumer. He's been a consumer. He's also been on the inside of foreign policy and has a sense of when things like that people worry about, covert action, have worked and not worked. Uh, the, the interesting part is what he's going to do and what's going to happen to the one bad role that the agency has gotten into, and that is paralegal opera, paramilitary operations. I go back, I hate to say it, to Dick Helms and uh, the 60s and 70s, and, and Helms once told me that he thought having the CIA get into paramilitary operations, as in, at that point, Vietnam, uh, was a terrible mistake. And that they should, they are a clandestine organization. And military operations are public and belong with the military. Do you think Burns will end that? Yeah. I think that would... It's, it was, in a funny way, 
already under uh, discussion, partly, now ironically, because uh, the current acting Secretary of Defense was part of Special Forces. And what giving it to CIA paramilitary did was to have military army men resign because they'd much rather do it for the CIA than do it for the military. Yeah. And he was trying to return it back. That would, that would be welcome. James Carville. So how gassed up are you? I'm not particularly gassed up about it, but should I be on a whole Lloyd Austin, former military secretary of defense, a tearing down of barriers and institutions and everything else? Where, Where do you stand on that? Depends on the person. I think okay. the thing I've it always depends on the person. Last... Thank you. Write that in my dope sheet. Does it bother <laughs> you that he's a retired General Austin Army? No, I, it it doesn't. Okay. Uh, there's a civilian deputy and civilian secretaries, but I think you have to recognize that that like it or not, the military is has become the most respected arm of government. And what's going on in the Hill and what's going on in the White House isn't going to change it. It's going to make it stronger. Well, I I, I, I take the position, and, and I, I'm appreciate talking to you, he has the same rank as I do. He's a civilian. Once you retire, you're not in the military anymore. But he, he doesn't have any, there's no... You know, until he becomes defense secretary, he doesn't have any any sway over any. You know, he can't issue any orders or commands, anything like that. And so I'm, I, I it tends to not. You know, you got to mumble like George C. Marshall under your breath. You know, but I, I, that don't bother me that much. It really doesn't. But you, I'm, I'm happy to see that you're in accordance. <laughs> well, one of the sort of strangest part of doing what I've done all these years is you, you can. Figure out which military people uh, like fighting and which don't. And the best example is, is recently Mattis, uh, who was a break on what was going on, went in and people were worried he was going to invade Iran. Uh, and he was holding people back. Yeah, I I, I, kind of like the the kind that don't like. I mean, I guess sometimes you got to fight, but I'm not. Again, I want to just go back and remind people of this superb reporting that you did on the lead up to to the Iraq fiasco, uh, because I I think it was, you know, it it would have had people paid attention to you. It, it would have been stunning, but it, it sits there. You can look it up. Uh, and uh, as I recall, Walter, it was on page A-17 because here and after that, I always refer to you as A-17 paintings. <laughs> it, it, it was. It w- actually wasn't going to be in the paper at all until Woodward came along. And Bob Woodward had been full out on how bad uh, – Saddam Hussein was and how terrible and what we ought to do. And he had suddenly come across some source of his who backed up 
what I had been arguing for a couple of days. And to be honest, uh, the information that led me to it was uh, agency people who warned me that the so-called intelligence wasn't as good as they were claiming it was. And I had figured that they were, if we were actually going to attack, we wouldn't be telling the UN Hans Blix uh, where we thought Saddam Hussein was keeping his uh, uranium and keeping his so-called weapons of mass destruction. And so I called up Pentagon with a couple of people I knew that were in the Air Force in charge of bombing, figuring bombing be the first thing we do. And it was an Air Force officer who told me we haven't the faintest idea where their weapons of mass destruction were or if they even had them. And that got me going. Well, so if, if you think about it, just make one more point. Uh, we got to close this. Yeah, yeah. Even Bush, as is, is, is light as he was, remember when Tennant said it's a slam dunk? I mean, he was basically saying, this looks like some thin gruel to me, man. Even him. Well, uh, it, it, they went on, oh, no, and, and the whole thing about Hans Blix, oh, he's a, he's a Swedish lawyer. My God. What, is, what does he know? To be a goddamn Swedish lawyer. That was a whole rap on Hans Blix. Turned out a Swedish lawyer was right. <laughs> no, he had already been in the business of, of going into Iran and finding the original weapons of mass destruction when they had them. Right. <laughs> Well, uh, well, thank you so much. Go ahead, continues to be right uh, all the time. Uh, that's what I tried to tell his wife, Anne, on, on innumerable occasions. And if you want to read him now, go to the Cypher Brief, because his columns are as good as ever, uh, which is why we had him on the show. Walter Pincus, thank you so much for joining us. James, take care of yourself. I'm trying to, man. I'm getting my second shot on the 25th. <laughs> well, you younger people. Y'all got to come back. You and Ann got to come to New Orleans. We go to Clancy's again and have that, dinner. That was still one of the best nights of the trip. His Ann Pinkus is one of the, if you had the first ballot Hall of Fame gossip, oh, my God, she is the, she's the greatest, oh, ever, the most entertaining person I've ever been around. Captain. Captain of the team. Captain of the team. All right, man. Take care. Take care. <laughs> Bye. See ya. James, we go now to one of our very favorite segments, and that is listener questions. And you know, they're getting more and they're getting better. They're from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, and they are really smart because some of them I got to think about, you know, a little bit. I just saw them. Uh, this morning. But let me start off with Wren from Woodlands, Texas. This is good for you. Would you please comment on the evolution of the Federalist Society from a philosophical club for pointy head conservative lawyers to the political wing of the Trump and right wing army? So I, I think you probably know a little bit. I mean, I know something about this. It could be the birth of the Federalist Club, club is one of the most influential moments in modern American history. I, I mean, say what you want, they have become stunningly powerful. 
Yeah. And really what they are really about is just letting rich people make as much money as you possibly can. And, you know, screw in middle class and poor people. They'd give you a lot of that, you know, bloviating shit about, you know, originalism and, and, and all of that. They're, they're really about nothing but unfettered let, let let make let the fewest make as much money as they possibly can pollute as much as they possibly can have as dangerous a workplace as you possibly can limit people's voting rights as much as you can limit the rights of of of, of women or or, or, or non caucasians as much as you can you know it, it, it it's it's maybe as effective in, in was more more effective than the lost cause was because it made a lost cause elected a lot of people and had a lot of bullshit history around it. But I would put the Federalist Society right up there with the lost cause. I really would. No, it is the only good thing I can say about him is uh, one alum was that judge in Pennsylvania, Trump appointee, who dismissed with disdain the suit brought by those Republicans, which our friend Jim Jordan referred to uh, as meritorious on the House floor today and and made the comment, you know something, because you say something is true without evidence does not mean it's true. But that's about it. I think you're right about that. Uh, I didn't have any evidence. I just was so anxious to like, you know, he didn't, he, I mean, even you got to have some modicum of evidence. And they don't care about that. They, they care about they care about letting corporations freaking pollute. They, that, that's what they care about. That's just a giant head fake. And there was no evidence. The Federalist Party, they got everything they want. They want yeah. Trump out of there. They want Trump they out of there. Trump. James, we now are going to go across the pond again from Budapest, Hungary. Chris, ask a good question. How will Biden be able to restore democracy around the world, like from Orban, uh, the dictator over in Hungary, uh, when Trump is trying to create a fascist state back in America. I think that's true up until next uh, Wednesday. I think you do it by example. It's slow. You're patient. Uh, there are going to be trade-offs. I mean, we're going to have to try to get China to cooperate on climate change. At the same time, we are condemning their atrocious record on uh, human rights and political repression. There are, unfortunately, since Trump took over, there has been a move towards more uh, more more dictatorship, semi-fascism, or out-and-out fascism like Hungary. But I think Joe Biden will set an example, and I think not going to change overnight, but it'll be helpful. He just got it right now. You know, the United States has to survive. And I'm, I hate to say this, but I'll let like, people like Ann Applebaum worry about that. Yeah, she does it well, and I'll read about it, and, you know, Timothy Snyder, who we ought to get on this show one day. That might be brilliant. We ought to get Ann Applebaum too. They're basically yeah, sure. But but Mike right now, Austin. right now, I I, I should be. I, I'm, I'm a citizen of the world. I'm a I'm a globalist. I'm an internationalist. I, I, I believe in the brotherhood of man. But I, I just can't give a shit about Hungary right now. Well, the fatherhood of God too is. Yeah, is there the, you go. The bomb fog. Listen, Mike in Austin, Texas. No, it's two short years ago. Arizona and Georgia didn't have any Democratic senators. They now have four combined. Does this have anything to do with policy or is it just plain old demographics? Well, I mean, I guess you can say the demographics came and it certainly had something to do with policy. But uh, 
you know, honestly, I don't, I don't can't say where one starts and the other ends. Mm-hmm. But and the, the other thing is that you know the money, number of people, at least until this, are probably still all college degrees are growing, which is a good thing. And is, of course, I, I I think which is part of why uh, the Republicans are so anti-education because the, the one thing we do know is that education is a predictor of voting behavior, and the more educated you are. Uh, the more likely you are to vote Democratic in these days. So the logical policy outgrowth of that is to, like, not fund education. The more people that graduate from the University of Georgia, the more likely that you're going to have uh, more Democrats. By the way, my my friend Steve Rigney would accumulate a remarkable record as the uh, president of the University of Georgia is resigned. This is a remarkable educational system they have in Georgia. It really is. It's not... When he's the president of the University of Georgia, that means it's Georgia Tech and, you know, Savannah State and Georgia Southern and, and every public university in the state. And they've really, like, increased funding and stuff like that. But that, if, that that's a, there's a connection between education and, and voting behavior. And yeah. they figured that out. Why do you think I, they spend I, all their time attacking these colleges? And I think Dr. Crow has been a great leader out at Arizona State, too. So I think you're really on to something. Here's a here's a question that that, that we both are going to love. It's from Nina Kaiser. But Nina, next time you write, tell us where you're from. She said, this is a good game. Who would go in the bunker with Trump? Allah, who went in with Hitler? It wouldn't be Melania. It's not going to be Barron. He blew it with Pence. Who would it be? It won't be Ivanka. I can assure you that. It wouldn't be Ivanka. I can assure you that. Uh, Eric and, and Donald Jr., otherwise known as Uday and Husay, maybe. He doesn't have a dog. Uh, Stephen Miller, I don't know. He, he, that that Trump bunker may be a pretty lonely place. Yeah, I, I agree. I have a right now, questions. A, a friend, Santa from Seattle, who's getting great, soon to graduate from college. I'm about to give you the first crack at this. And it is... Uh, here it is. I'm currently a senior in high school. I'm thinking about my future college and career. How can I enter politics in a couple of years in such a toxic and divisive era? So who would you oh, tell me? Because a lot of young people are thinking the same thing. Well, James, can I, you give me first crack at it. It was a very yes, simple. Yes, I do. I, I do. I, yeah, I do. because you're needed. You're needed. People like you have to be in there. If not, you forfeit it to the Jim Jordans of the world. Please, please. Uh, whatever you do, a volunteer, a campaign aide, uh, run for city council, I, whatever it is, please participate. I, I, I agree. I, as you know, I have no trepidation about disagreeing with you from time to time. I agree with you totally. <laughs> right. You were right one time, too, when you disagreed with me. I can't remember when it was, but there was that one. Time. <laughs> Here's uh, Steve in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, James, do you think Josh Hawley's going to suffer any consequence for his support of the attempted coup? So this is something that I do know something about. Now, and, and I've been around politics for a long time, and I teach communications. And one of the things that I teach students I talk about is great politicians are like great athletes. The best of them never look like they're trying too hard. You know, it never looked like Willie Mays was trying too hard. Right. right? It, 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 it's kind of weird. You know, it it it. it if you look at, think of Tom Brady or you think of Drew, they're, they're kind of cool under fire. And that was true of, of Reagan. It was certainly, it was true of Clinton. And to some extent, it was true of Obama. Maybe, you know, and it, 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 you never see him sweat. 
the great ones, right. you just never see them sweat. No now, drama. They're trying to ask right. don't, 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 don't kid me. I mean, they're the most competitive people that you can imagine. Josh Hawley, he doesn't have any skill at this. You can't. He just looks like he's just trying, you know. I mean, even you think of like great basketball players, you know, they had a certain grace about them. He, he's just like a guy that he's a, he averages, you know, 3.2 points a game because he just keeps, you know, growling toward the boards and it just keep knocking out of his hand. He, he does not, he does not possess any political skill. And there's a very good piece. And I want to say that it's an academic Catherine Stewart, I could have it wrong, it was in the Times. Yeah, in the Times. And this is yeah. all wrapped up in, in some crazy religious oh. shit that you wouldn't believe. Because oh. you look at this guy and he's like, I mean, he's something that, that every credentialist, I mean, some Al Guy Al Hunter, like went to Stanford and he went to, to I don't know, Yale. And, I mean, he's had every card punch you can. Clark? Yeah. Met his wife was there. Yeah, I, he's he's like he he is not this. I don't know. I don't know if he has how much of a political future he has in Missouri. I guess he could be pretty crazy and get elected there. The best probably change it too. His biggest donor, the guy gave him six million dollars, said he ought to be censured. He's just done with him and sent it to Danforth, who's an icon of the establishment. I mean, well, with his mentor, with his mentor, says worst mistake I've ever made in my life. Yeah. James, uh, I, I mean, this guy doesn't have. He does not have any political skill. You're right. And I, but I still, a month ago, I would have said he's tapping into some stuff. I think it's pretty phony, the popular stuff. And I'd have put him on a short list. I don't know how big that list is seven or eight of people that you got to watch. Take him off now. He, he's, you know, he's gone. Uh, he's dead meat. Uh, you're right. No political skills. Yeah, I, 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 I like to watch him because he makes a fool of himself. Yeah, he made a total. It's fun to watch. Um, yeah. Mark and Rancho Muriata, I think it's uh, that's right. Um, Simon Rancho Gisco. Mirage. No, it's uh, it, it's M U R I E T A. Is it is it Mirai? Anyway, okay. But anyway, Mark, wherever you live, it's a good question. Now the Democrats have control of government. What are the chances of abolishing the pernicious electoral college? Mark, I hate to say this, zero. It's not going to happen. Not that I don't think it should, but it won't. I, 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 you know, there's this alternate thing, the, the, the compact, where in a state, once you get two hundred states that equal 270, then there's legislation, whether it's constitutional or not, I don't know, that would direct the electors in those states to vote for the popular vote winner. There's actually a, 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 a backdoor way they think to do it without. Change, there's zero chance you're going to get a constitutional amendment. Yeah. But we, we, maybe at some point when everything dies down, we can do something on the uh, Electoral College Compact. And, and they're, uh, they're up to some significant number now. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. it's the, the legislation, Maryland started it and said once the sufficient states that amount to 270, this law becomes operative. Well, I'm not, I, I haven't looked at it. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. Wouldn't have had any effect in 2000. Uh, it wouldn't right. have had any effect in 2016. So, yeah, it may be fine, but, you know, what you really uh, – I, 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 I just point that out. There's some right. – there's, there's a lot of energy that, that goes into that, and it's right. probably a little bit on hold because, people, you know, it's like democracy and hunger is just one of these James, things. James, here's our final question. 
from John in Mitchell, South Dakota, who asked, when will the National Party support and invest in places like South South Dakota so we can win some races like the governor's race in 18 or have a shot and help the party in down ballot races? That's a that's a 60 percent Republican state now. It didn't used to be. Uh, does it make sense to invest in places like South Dakota? Well, what I would say is, first of all, it makes sense to invest in America. And there's nothing more. So, as you know, 70, the counties that Biden carried represent 70% of U.S. GDP. Right. Yeah. When, when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, when they, when they did all of the New Deal stuff, a lot of that did the REA and, you know, God knows what out of it. It was massive investment in, in, in rural America. And rural America, is it really needs? I mean, I'm a I'm a son of rural, a child of rural America, and it, it, if you go out and you live in it or you see it, it's just everything. So dance is yes, and you know it, it, it's, it's just the right thing to do as Americans. And you know if we can crank up some prosperity out there, which you could. I mean, you got you got to put broadband in there. You can do all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a thousand ideas, and there's some good schools out there, South Dakota State, you know, South Dakota, I bet you they got some some really, you know, real good ideas of what you can do to improve the plight of, of rural America. Uh, you, you certainly have a, a very large Native American population there. If you look at the poorest counties in the United States, a lot of a lot more than you think are in South Dakota. And, you know, these, these communities are, that they need investment, and these these are Americans out there. And yes, he's 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 absolutely right. Uh, most all of the growth in productivity in this country is coming from urban America, and I'm not necessarily against that, but it, it it's a neglected part, and I think to to a large extent that they feel neglected. And and I think if we we you know I don't know if it get us any votes. I, I think it would. Yeah. But you got to do it. Yeah, we got to stop this place, shit. No, I, I think you're right on. The place has changed, but it wasn't that long ago that they had some really, really uh, illustrious uh, representatives like Tom Daschle. Um, you know, surely it has changed, but it hadn't changed that much. Maybe you get more education, as you said. You do more of those investments. You can at least uh, at least be competitive. But anyway, listen, those letters are great. Keep them coming. Please tell us where you're from. Uh, if we had if we had the time, we'd go through fifteen more. But uh, next week, uh, we'll get to as many as we can. Hey, James, let's let's go to our Robert Novak Memorial segment on the outrage of the week. There's so many these days. We've talked about a lot of them. We'll talk about them more. But you know, shortly after we taped our show last week, I saw that vicious mob storming the Capitol and desecrating my favorite place. In Washington, I worked there as a reporter for a decade. The sadness and shock for all of us watching was indescribable. But my outrage is directed at those senators and House members, more than 130, who, after this carnage took place, did two things. They condemned the criminal violence. They were, they were shocked, but not the perpetrators. Didn't mention Donald Trump. Then they voted for the lie that Trump spewed to incite that mob. That was he was charging there was a fraudulent election, and that's the way they voted after the carnage. We don't have time to go through all the names, but let me signal out two rotten hypocrites, Florida Senator Rick Scott and House Majority, House Minority Leader 
unfortunately, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Yep. So I, 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 Albert, I watch a, a lot of right-wing media and I listen to speeches, and it's all the same thing. We deplore what happened, but the liberal mob, they were fine with, with the burning and looting and rioting in Seattle, and they, you know, and we all should, like, but sometimes miss that sea of asininity a mountain, an island of staggering asininity emerges. Let me read you the following. Okay. Here we go. Yep. One, two, three. Twitter is slow. Attorney generals in 46 states, three territories in D.C. signed on to a letter condemning the storming of the U.S. Capitol. A.G. Jeff Landry of Louisiana was not among them. He previously chaired the National, so- National Attorney General Association with Senate. Read the letter. He and the Attorney General of Texas, Indiana, and Montana would not sign a letter condemning the, the insurrection at the United States Capitol. I will tell you, in a, in a, in a really, when, when, when you've seen some of the most staggeringly disappointing behavior that you can imagine, my hat's off to you, Jeff Landry. You've managed to stick out as one giant raving asshole. Well, yes, it's man. beyond a freaking outrage. It is. It's it embarrassing. Is. You can't even like say, well, you can couch it and, you know, give it all of the, you know, Sean Handy. Well, I'll tell you what, on this program, but we have always condemned Violence of any kind, and uh, but uh, the liberal mob is all started by the media in Section Two Thirty, and Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, I mean, I, all wait, right, wait, I, wait, I, don't, I, wait, 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 James, you're forgetting George Soros. He's responsible oh, for oh, everything, of course. Yeah, right. but these guys like couldn't even bring themselves. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's just it's it, it's it's just breathtaking. You know, like I say, mm-hmm. it, it never disappoints. There's always people that come out. And yeah. he, he's going to run the yeah. governor. It's, just, it's sickening. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon and tell us where you're from. Thanks for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning for 2021, our first show with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Don't you feel better already?
a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.